As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's thank Ellen. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Yeah. This is a great Sunday. It's a celebration Sunday. Uh, We are in this move where we're shifting from that spirit of fasting through Lent and moving into the beginning of Holy Week. So this is the first day of Holy Week. um, And this is the high point of the Christian calendar right here. Okay, this week that we're moving into uh, between this Sunday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday and Easter Sunday next week. Um, this is the high point of the Christian year. Let me just go ahead and, and brace you a little bit. Uh, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, also happens to be April Fool's Day. So please prepare yourselves, all right, for like a flood of Jesus and like April Fool's Day memes, okay? That'll be like Jesus emerging from the tomb like you thought I was dead, April Fool's, Okay. Just get ready. They are coming. Okay, I know it. All right. So um, so we are in this this celebration day of Palm Sunday where we join in that spirit of worship, that spirit of praise that we saw in that passage that Ellen just read as people are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as the long awaited Messiah, as the rightful king. And this act of them laying these palm branches, there's all kind of historical significance to this. And it's this symbolism in that in their culture of recognizing that he is the deliverer. He's the one they've been waiting for, like the great heroes of old who've overthrown empires and and rescued the Jewish people. And that's who they see Jesus to be. And they're celebrating that about Jesus and we lean into that with them and we join in that song of praise that one verse that stands out to me so much in that passage is verse 10 when it says this the whole city was stirred and asked who is this who is this that just hits me and I want that to be my prayer is that that is a description of what ends up happening in our town I want that to be the the spirit of of what is moving in our community, that there's this sense of stirring, that the whole community is stirred and and is forced to ask the question and wrestle with the question, who is this? Who is this? And then that answer back, this is Jesus from Nazareth. This is Jesus. 
Actually, uh, the series that we're going to do right after Easter, we're going to do a three-week series where we're partnering up with 50 other churches in the Triangle, a series called Explore God. And that's the first question that we're going to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? That's a great opportunity if you have friends that are wrestling with that question to bring them and, and as we unpack that together. OK, so just be aware that that's coming as well. Who is Jesus? That is my prayer that this whole community would be stirred and would be forced to wrestle with that question. That is a life changing question. It's a pivotal question. And so this day begins in, in this sense of celebration and this sense of joy. But it's puzzling, isn't it, when we look at how quickly the story turns from this day of joy that then as we begin to move into Holy Week, we can see that by Good Friday, we are mourning the death of Jesus. This tragic event where Jesus is crucified on a cross, he's put to death by the Roman Empire, this execution that was reserved for these insurgent type figures to send a message to, to anyone who saw it. Don't even think about following this person. Don't ever don't even think about leading some kind of uprising against the Roman government, because this is exactly what's going to happen to you. And this brutal, cruel form of punishment that was perfectly designed to be excruciating in its pain. In fact, that word excruciating comes from the word the cross. That's how it enters into our language is from that, that the Latin word of the cross. Excruciating, crux. In this designed form of punishment, to shut down any other uprising in its wake. How do we get from the joy of Palm Sunday to that moment? Together as a church family, we're going we're gonna to observe Good Friday. We're going to mourn the death of Jesus together. We're going to celebrate his sacrifice in the way that that brings salvation to us at, uh, at the Forest Theater, 5 p.m. this Friday. We'd love to have you be a part of that. We're joining in with several other churches in the community um, to worship together as a family together and to observe that. And it is puzzling how we move from this celebration and this joy of Palm Sunday and we get to Good Friday in such a short amount of time. But as we take a closer look at this moment of Palm Sunday, then we can begin to see the seeds of how we get there so quickly. When we look a little bit closer, we can see that certainly we view this day as a day of celebration. And I'm not trying to move ahead too much, okay, to the cross too quickly here. This is a day of celebration in the regular rhythm of the church calendar. And it's really important for us to sit in that. And absolutely, we join the praises of the people who are welcoming Jesus in as the long-awaited Messiah and the true King of God's people. But it's really important to recognize that in this moment of Palm Sunday, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, as the people all celebrate him, it's important to remember the brazen controversy of this scene. And it's really easy for us to miss. It's really tempting for us just to frame Jesus in this moment, like riding on the donkey, like meek and mild and, and humble. And he certainly is. He's displaying his humility 
in that moment. But there is so much more to it than just that. There's so much more to it than just that. In this moment, he is making a bold and provocative claim to the throne. And that's what gets him killed. Look at the context. Let's, let's situate ourselves in the context. So Matthew chapter 21 begins with the triumphal entry. And the next thing that happens is we've got the cleansing of the temple. And then right after that, we've got the cursing of the fig tree. These three events right back to back are meaningful and they're stacked together like that on purpose. And as we begin to unpack these a little bit, we can see the layers of meaning behind them. In the triumphal entry, Jesus is upsetting and confronting the religious establishment because he's claiming to be the Messiah. Okay, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Even there's this quote from the prophet Zechariah that Ellen read there that, that's referenced in that passage where, where he has this prophecy that behold, daughter of Zion, your king riding in on a donkey. And so Jesus intentionally chooses that form of transportation to get into the city. The people, their, their memories, they recognize that and they embrace him as that claim of Messiah. So he's making this bold confrontation to the religious establishment, but he's also making a bold confrontation to the Roman Empire. Because how do you think it's going to go over for somebody else claiming to be a king in the Roman Empire? Not well. Spoiler alert, all right? Not well. But Jesus understands all of this imagery coming together, and he boldly goes right into the teeth of danger riding on the back of that donkey. So there's this claim that he's making in the triumphal entry to be king, which was controversial to the religious establishment and to the Roman Empire at the same time. He's challenging the political system of the day. Then in the cleansing of the temple, he goes into the temple and he says, you've turned my father's house that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. And he chases out the livestock and he begins flipping tables. And we see this odd image of Jesus that doesn't seem to match up with the other images that we get of him through the Gospels. And he's making this bold claim. If in the triumphal entry, if he's confronting the political system, then in the cleansing of the temple, he's he's confronting the religious system. And if in the in the triumphal entry, he's claiming to be the king, then in this moment of cleansing the temple, he's claiming to be the priest the ultimate priest for the people of Israel. The one who has authority over the temple. He can come in and do this because it's his house. And he can do that in his house. The next thing that happens is the cursing of the fig tree. We get this moment where Jesus is hungry, it says. And he sees a fig tree. And so he walks up to it because there are leaves on this fig tree walks up and when he gets close to it he realizes there are no figs on this fig tree and he curses the fig tree and it withers and dies and at this point the disciples are like let's just give him some space today all right he's kind of had a rough one all right what is the deal with this story why would jesus do that like i kind of picture jesus as a bit of a tree hugger type you know what i mean like care for the trees jesus that's not cool but here's what's going on, all right? Here's what's happening beneath the surface of that. The fig tree was a symbol of the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. 
there was this nationalistic symbolism attached to the fig tree, specifically the spiritual authority and leadership. That was a part of the symbolism. And for Jesus to curse this fig tree was was a very controversial thing for him to do. And why does he curse it? Not just because he's hungry and he's in a bad mood. Because the tree has leaves on it. And it's the season for bearing the fig. It's a season where it should be bearing the fruit. And it's got all of the signs of having fruit because the leaves are in bloom. And so he goes up to it and he examines closely. And even though from a distance that tree is saying, I am full of fruit. Look at these leaves. When he gets up close, there are no, there's no fruit on the branches. And Jesus is saying, this is what the religious leadership is like. This is what the spiritual leadership of my people is like. You've got all the signs of life, but when I get up close, there is no fruit. And he curses the fig tree and it withers and dies. That's chapter 21. That's a pretty intense chapter. All right. That's the beginning of. Of Holy Week. That's us moving into Holy Week. Can you see how we're making our way quickly to Good Friday? When he's making all of these controversial moves. He's confronting the political system. He's confronting the religious system. He's even confronting some of their ideas of nationalism and patriotism. He's confronting the religious and spiritual leadership and saying there's, there, there's, you've got the signs of it. And you're putting up this front. But when I look closely, there's nothing on the branches and I'm hungry I'm hungry and you've left me feeling hungry then we move into Matthew chapter 22 this is interesting to me because in Matthew chapter 22 we get the greatest commandment this moment when Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, they're looking for a way to trap him because of everything that's happened in chapter 21. It's all mounting up and building. So now they're looking for a way to trap Jesus so they can get rid of Jesus. And so they come to him with this spiritual trap and like this, this question that's meant to trick. And they say, Jesus, what is, you wise teacher, what is the greatest commandment of all? And what they're trying to do is for Jesus to emphasize one commandment, which then they'll claim he's de-emphasizing the others. And they're going to find some way to trap Jesus in his words, no matter what answer he gives. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you're like, I don't think it matters what I say right now. Because you're going that direction if I go over here. So that's where Jesus was. They had him in this moment where they had him trapped and they had him cornered. And Jesus doesn't choose one of the Ten Commandments, which is what they were expecting him to do. Instead, he says, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it and can't be cut away from it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes this statement. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. In Jesus' day and time, that phrase, the law and the prophets, is a phrase that's meant to, to say, look, all of the scriptures, everything that God has spoken, everything that God has revealed and said to us and commanded of us, the law and the prophets. And he says the whole thing hangs on these two commands. Take those two out and everything else falls apart. 
Seems like cheating because they asked him for one and Jesus gives them two. <laughs> right? It's like he's Jesus. He can get away with it. But there's more than that. Okay? And we've talked about this before here. This is something that we keep coming back to. These two commands cannot be separated from each other because together they make one complete command. And they're not complete apart from each other. Asking Jesus to choose which is more important, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or love your neighbor as yourself, is like asking him to choose which is more important, breathing in or breathing out. Pick one. What's it going to be? And as we know, if you're not doing both, then pretty soon you're not doing either one. And this is what Jesus is telling us. This is like Christian breathing. This is like Christian breathing. And so in that answer, it's brilliant. I love it. The thing that I love most is that this is in Matthew chapter 22, where we've had all of these controversial things that have happened in chapter 21. And then in chapter 23, we get to the seven woes that we've been walking through together. And this confrontational message that Jesus is giving. And in between those two controversial moments, we get the greatest commandment. I don't know about you, but, but if you were just to randomly ask me, like, hey, when do you think Jesus said the whole love God with all you have and then love your neighbor too? Like, when do you think he said that? I bet most of us would imagine and picture Jesus saying that, like, on a nice hillside, surrounded by people just, like, really intently listening to every word he says with the occasional, mmm, right? I love those. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> But no, that's not when he's saying it. He's saying it in the midst of this week when he knows he's headed towards his death. Love is not weak. Love is not weak. A lot of people hear that like oh, love God and love others. And it sounds like the sentimental and weak kind of approach. There's nothing weak about love. It is the strongest force in the universe. <laughs> And Jesus is about to prove how strong love is as he's making his way to the cross, driven by his love for us, as he lays down his life for us. And he's buried in the grave because of the depth of his love for us to rescue us. There's nothing weak about love. Then we get to chapter 23. And this is where we've been together. And for these next few moments, we're going to wrap up this series that we've been in together, looking at the woes of Jesus. I said at the beginning that that might be the worst idea for a sermon series ever, to look at the seven woes of Jesus, where he's like, woe to you, you hypocrites. Who wants to dig into that, all right? But let me just confess, I was really wrong about that, at least for me personally, because this has been one of the most challenging journeys that I've been on in a really long time. And these words of Jesus have been challenging me because he refuses to let me just just see him like he won't stand on the sidelines and cheer as he like hammers away at the Pharisees. Instead, he's pointing these words right at me and every single time it's piercing my heart and he's revealing to me that I am one of these Pharisees. I want to imagine myself in the story as one of Jesus's disciples, right? Like being there at Jesus' side, helping him however he wants, okay? He multiplies the bread and fish. I'm carrying the baskets, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with him, you know? <laughs> I, I carried the basket, all right? That's all I did, but still. 
I want to picture myself like that. Or I want to picture myself as one of these people that Jesus embraces on the margins. And, 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 and reveals his grace and love. I want to be one of those people. But more and more over these last couple of months, Jesus is showing me you're one of the Pharisees. You are one of the Pharisees. And I'm confronting the way you have boxed me in. I will not be boxed in by you. I won't do it. I'm going to mess you up. I'm going to keep messing you up. and I'm going to keep asking you to follow me no matter what it costs. So these last two woes, as Jesus is speaking to the religious leadership, we've seen the building, 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 building of all of this controversy. And now in chapter 23, he's speaking directly to the religious leaders and he's giving them seven woes, which is just a word that means warning. Be warned. Be warned, you Pharisees, you spiritual experts. You masters of obedience. Those of you who know the scriptures in and out, be warned. Be warned over and over again. He's saying this seven times, as we've said before, seven being that that number in scripture that represents completeness and fullness, which is a way of saying that their corruption has come to a fullness. And to this point of, of completeness, this breaking point of completeness. And in these last two woes that Jesus gives to them. He intertwines one image in both of them. It's the image of a tomb. And it's the image of death. Here's what he says. Listen to starting in verse 27. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. He's talking to us. You are like whitewashed tombs. Which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside are full of dead bones. And everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say if we had lived in the days of our ancestors. We would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your ancestors or in some versions and in this version. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Wow. Strong, piercing words from Jesus in these two different woes number six and number seven he takes one image and he ties them together with this same image the first image of a tomb he says whitewashed tombs whitewashed tombs what 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 does that mean Jesus is incredibly creative with his imagery so we can imagine as he's saying this like this this painted tomb that's like painted like brightness right and it seems like it's freshened up and yet it hides the signs of death underneath and within but it's not only a creative image that Jesus is using it's a timely image because here's the thing about whitewashed tombs in the Jewish culture you were not allowed to touch a dead body at all If you touched a dead body, then you were unclean for seven days. And it means you couldn't participate in worship for that time period. And so you had to avoid touching dead bodies. If you did, then you're unclean. Okay? 
But it's not just dead bodies. Also, if you would have touched a tomb or a gravestone or something like that that's connected, then that would have counted against you, okay? And that would have been considered making you unclean as well. Now, you can imagine like rocks in, in that kind of region, in that kind of area, how it maybe it's difficult to recognize when you're coming close to a gravestone. It's difficult to recognize that, especially a lot of the, the uh, gravestones would have been along the pathways and along the road. And especially at a time like Passover, which is when this passage is taking place. It's when this story is happening. During the time of Passover, pilgrims from all over would make their way into Jerusalem. That's why there was such a massive crowd welcoming Jesus when he comes in on Palm Sunday. They're not all from Jerusalem. They're from the surrounding areas, and they've made the pilgrimage in to be there for Passover. And the city is packed. It's packed because of that. And on your way in, all of these crowds pushing their way into the city, there was the fear that somebody might accidentally, in all of that chaos, in that mass of people, might accidentally stumble across one of these gravestones, accidentally touch one, and then after this long trip that they've made, now they're disqualified from participating in worship. So right before the Passover every year, they would go out and they would whitewash the tombs. Freshly cover them in this bright kind of outer cover so that they were impossible to miss so you didn't accidentally stumble across them. This has just happened when Jesus is saying this. And he's looking around, he's saying, you're like whitewashed tombs. They know immediately what he's talking about. The strange thing about this is that they say, that as you made your way into the city and you could see the freshly whitewashed tombs, there was actually something really beautiful about them. Shining in the sunshine, it was really beautiful and it captured people's attention. And for a moment, you would consider that as a beautiful thing, even though underneath was death. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. You make every effort to appear that you've got it all together. To present this outward facade of righteousness. But in reality, you're an artfully carved gravestone. You are a carefully landscaped plot of grass. Pretending that you aren't hiding death underneath. He's speaking to every one of us in that. You're a whitewashed tomb and underneath is death. Underneath is death. Anybody here ever heard of, uh, have you heard recently of Sister Jean? Let's put this picture up of Sister Jean. I love Sister Jean. I want to be Sister Jean, all right? Yes. Will someone please let the Carolina basketball team know that I want to be their elderly prayer lady, okay? <laughs> also, she's part of Gryffindor House, which is pretty cool, too. All right. I love Sister Jean, okay? So if you don't know who Sister Jean is, she's like the team chaplain for this team, Loyola Chicago, the Ramblers. Even their, like, mascot is an underdog, okay? This is great. The Ramblers. They're an 11th seed in the NCAA tournament, and now they are going to the Final Four, which is just an incredible story. I love it. A couple of the guys on the team have been teammates and friends since they were in the third grade. 
And now they're about to go to the final four together, which is just incredible. She prays for the team. And people have been interviewing her like crazy, like, what's the secret? Like, how's this happening? Like, your prayers are incredible. <laughs> All right. So she prays over the team. And I just need to, I hate to break your theology right now. But look, we all know God doesn't care who wins a basketball game, right? Okay. And if you need proof of that, then, I mean, Carolina's his favorite team, and we lost last week. So. There you go. All right. But she prays over the basketball players, and it's great. Everybody wants to talk to Sister Jean and wants to talk about her prayers and, and all this craziness. But the cool thing about this is that Brian and Cherry Quatch, who are leaders in the church here, they actually went to Loyola, Chicago, and they know Sister Jean. <laughs> and I'm like, Brian, did Sister Jean ever pray over you? And he's like, yeah, she prayed over me during finals week one time. I'm like, you probably got an A. And the next time we play basketball, you're on my team, all right? Awesome. But here's the great thing about it. Sister Jean is like completely in the spotlight right now for these few moments. But the cool thing is, is what Brian and Cherry are saying about her. Like, oh, man, here's who she is. Here's what she did. Like, everybody on campus knows her as this person who's willing to pray at any moment with anybody. Like, everybody on campus knows her. Like, she goes to the events, and she's always there. She's this presence that's there, and this humble presence, praying over people, lifting people's spirits. She lives in one of the dorms, which is great, right? Keep it down, okay? But she's the real thing, and I love that. I love that the stories that are, like, trickling out from people that actually know her are, like, better than the stories we're getting on TV. It's better than what we're hearing on TV. So many times it's the opposite. Like, once you look more deeply into somebody who seems to be shining on the surface, you look a little more deeply, and you're really disappointed in what you find. You start to look closely, and, and the story starts to cave in. They shine in the sunlight like the whitewashed tombs. But when you get close, when you start to dig beneath the surface, then you're actually appalled at what's underneath. I don't want to be one of those stories. I don't want you to be one of those stories. There's a great spiritual mystic, a Christian mystic named Richard Foster, who says this, what we need right now in this moment is not talented people or famous people or culturally attractive people. What we need in this moment are deep people. We need deep people. We don't be the kind of people that when, when, when they start to dig beneath the surface, they're surprised at how deep it goes. They're surprised at what they find underneath in a compelling way what Jesus is speaking directly to them the next piece that Jesus says in that moment when he slams them for decorating the tombs of the prophets and yet if they lived in that day they would have done just like their ancestors did and put these prophets to death these prophets that are revered and held up in their history and he's like but you killed them you love them you celebrate them but you killed them and when they showed up speaking the words of God, you weren't humbled by it, you were offended by it, you were angered by it, and you put them to death. 
you're as bad as your ancestors. Actually, you're worse because you're about to put to death in a matter of days the one that all the prophets were talking about. The one who is the fulfillment of every promise that any of those prophets ever made, you're about to put him to death. You're going to fill up to fullness the measure of anything that they did. Go ahead and finish the job that your ancestors started. Piercing words from Jesus. It's interesting as Jesus says these woes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Can't you just feel like the offense in the Pharisees building up and the anger and the frustration? Who does he think he is talking like this? The crazy thing about it, though, is Jesus starts to make this connection back to the prophets and to the way their their ancestors dealt with the prophets. The crazy thing is this, that Jesus' woes, this language Jesus is using of woe to you, it's an intentional echo of what prophets said before him. It's intentional. These people who claim to know the scriptures in and out, they don't even recognize the scriptures as they're being spoken to them. And Jesus is saying, look, this is what the prophets have always been saying. He's building, he's building, he's building, and now he's culminating in this final woe and warning that he gives to them. That if they lived back then, they wouldn't have listened to the prophets because they're not listening to him now. They don't even recognize the words of the prophets. This language is, is, is like this rhetorical device that the prophets used. Ezekiel used it. Woe to you. He said, Jeremiah used it, Isaiah used it, Nahum used it, Hosea used it, Habakkuk used it, Amos used it, Micah, even the wisdom writers of the Proverbs and, and, and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations, even the poets of the Psalms used this same language. And they say, if we would have been there back then, we would have listened. No, you wouldn't because you're not listening now. I'm saying the same thing and you're not Listening now, instead of making the connection and recognizing that Jesus sounded just like the prophets that they claimed to revere, they wrote him off as a rebel that they needed to bring into line. If they truly honored the prophets, then they would have been humbled by Jesus's words. But since they only honored themselves, they were offended and they were angered by it. And so are we. So are we. There's a lady named Jackie Smith in Memphis. Tennessee. Our friend Janine Simmons uh, saw her when Janine went to visit Memphis and visited the uh, the memorial at the Lorraine Motel. The Lorraine Motel is the place where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. The 50th anniversary of that is a week and a half from now, by the way. And as a church, we're going to participate in observing that with a group that's going to walk from Silent Sam across the street to what is Peace and Justice Plaza. And we're going to observe that and we're going to remember that it's 601, 50 years ago, April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was murdered, assassinated. Jackie Smith is this lady who used to actually live in the Lorraine Motel. She worked there, but she also lived there, and she was forced out of it in 1988 when they decided to turn it into a museum. And so from that day until now, she has protested across the street from the museum every day. Right there, it's 29 years, 247 days. And this was a few months back that she's protested that. 
And what's her protest? Stop worshiping the past. Start living the dream. Take the money that you're pouring into this museum and use it to do what Dr. King told us to do. That's her protest. She's an African-American woman who sees that because of the money that's being poured into that museum and the, the tax value of the piece, property going up around it that many of the people, African-American people who have lived there for years and years and years have been now forced out of that community right next to a place that's supposed to be a civil rights museum. Now here's my confession. I'm deeply conflicted about this image because I absolutely think that we should have spaces set aside to remember people like Dr. King and what he stood for. And confession, my first, when Janine was telling me about her, my first reaction was to be offended. You can't do that. That's honoring Dr. King. You can't do that. You can't do, and I was offended. But as I began to work through that conflict, and I began to read a little bit more about who she is and what she's about, it makes me wonder if I'm not doing what she says on that sign. Stop worshiping the past and start living the dream. I don't know what to make of that. But that conflict is challenging to me. I know this. I say that I look up to the revolutionaries these people in history that I really admire and I really look up to. Dr. King is one of those people. But then I start to recognize that I'm, I, I'm very well maybe playing the role of, of keeper of the status quo. Like I imagine that I would be marching with him, but what am I doing right now? Am I still part of the opposition? If I can't speak up against racism when it costs me, then I certainly could not sit down to integrate a lunch counter. When it would cost me far more. We do the same. We do the same. And what's worse than us doing it in the face of someone like Dr. King is when we do it in the face of Jesus. We read the Gospels. And we hear what Jesus has to say to the Pharisees. And we imagine ourselves standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. And we say if I had lived in Jesus' day. Man, if I had lived during the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit was really moving. When the Holy Spirit was on the loose. If I had lived back then. You are in Jesus' day. Today is Jesus' day. He's never been more alive than he's alive right now. Right? As Christians, we stake everything on that truth. He's resurrected from the dead. He's alive. This is Jesus' day. This is his time. This is his town. And you are his people. And we live in the Spirit's day. This is the day of the Holy Spirit. Is he dead? No. Did he leave? No. He's never been more powerful than he is right now. He's still the same. Has he lost a step? No. 
The question is, are we walking in step with the spirit? Is he asleep? No, maybe we are. And it's time to wake up. Don't worship the past. Worship the God who is past, present and future. The God who is here and is now. So what do we do in response to all of this that Jesus has been challenging us with? Through these woes, what do we do with this? How do we respond? Do we just sit here and feel bad for ourselves? Because, man, I'm with the Pharisees. No, that's not what we do. We first, we begin by refusing to imagine ourselves standing bravely beside Jesus. And instead, we humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus. That's where we start. We confess that we're just like those who didn't listen to him then because we've got his word. He's living within us and we still don't listen to him now. And we confess that and we repent of that. And we say that we're just like the people who tried to force him into a religious system and we get angry and we get frustrated and we get offended when he will not stay put where, where we've placed him and when he challenges and questions the status quo system that we built for him. We ask for his forgiveness in that and we repent. And we lay down our palm branches at his feet and we say, you are the king. And we surrender ourselves to your reign. We confess and we admit and we repent and we embrace the bad news that Jesus is calling out the dead bones that are hiding underneath our beautifully decorated tombs. And then we embrace the good news that he knows exactly what to do with tombs. And that around Jesus, dead things don't stay dead for very long. But that's a story that's going to have to wait until next week. Jesus, you are king. We lift you up. We worship you. You're the one we've been waiting for. We confess that we don't listen to you often. We confess that we dig in our heels where we are and we fight for what is status quo in our lives. We repent of that and we say we want to follow you with everything that we are. We're surrendered to you, to your reign. We want to move where you move. We don't want to say, well, if I had lived in his day, but instead we recognize that this is your day. This is your town. We are your people. And we ask you to lead us and do with us whatever you want to do. So in your name we pray. Amen.